Section 26 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. Book 6 chapter nine thanks to saint nicholas we have safely finished this tremendous battle let us sit down my worthy reader and cool ourselves for i am in a prodigious sweat and agitation truly this fighting of battles is hot work and if your great commanders did but know what trouble they give their historians they would not have the conscience to achieve so many horrible victories but methinks I hear my reader complain that throughout this boasted battle there is not the least slaughter, not a single individual maimed, if we except the unhappy Swede who was shorn of his cue by the trenchant blade of Peter Stuyvesant, all of which he observes as a great outrage on probability and highly injurious to the interest of the narration. This is certainly an objection of no little moment but it arises entirely from the obscurity enveloping the remote periods of time about which i have undertaken to write thus though doubtless from the importance of the object and the prowess of the parties concerned there must have been terrible carnage and prodigies of valour displayed before the walls of christina yet notwithstanding that i have consulted every history manuscript and tradition touching this memorable though long-forgotten battle i cannot find mention made of a single man killed or wounded in the whole affair this is without doubt owing to the extreme modesty of our forefathers who unlike their descendants were never prone to vaunt of their achievements but it is a virtue which places their historian in a most embarrassing predicament for having promised my readers a hideous and unparalleled battle and having worked them up into a warlike and bloodthirsty state of mind to put them off without any havoc and slaughter would have been as bitter a disappointment as to summon a multitude of good people to attend an execution and then cruelly balk them by a reprieve had the fates allowed me some half a score of dead men i had been content for i would have made them such heroes as abounded in the olden time but whose race is now unfortunately extinct any one of whom if we may believe those authentic writers the poets could drive great armies like sheep before him and conquer and desolate whole cities by his single arm but seeing that i had not a single life at my disposal all that was left me was to make the most i could of my battle by means of kicks and cuffs and bruises and such like ignoble wounds and here i cannot but compare my dilemma in some sort to that of the divine milton who having arrayed with sublime preparation his immortal hosts against each other is sadly put to it how to manage them and how he shall make the end of his battle answer to the beginning inasmuch as being mere spirits he cannot deal a mortal blow nor even give a flesh wound to any of his combatants for my part the greatest difficulty i found 
was when I had once put my warriors in a passion and let them loose into the midst of the enemy, to keep them from doing mischief. Many a time had I to restrain the sturdy Peter from cleaving a gigantic Swede to the very waistband, or spitting half a dozen little fellows on his sword like so many sparrows. And when I had set some hundred of missives flying in the air, I did not dare to suffer one of them to reach the ground, lest it should have put an end to some unlucky Dutchman. The reader cannot conceive how mortifying it is to a writer, thus in a manner to have his hands tied, and how many tempting opportunities I had to wink at, where I might have made as fine a death-blow as any recorded in history or song. From my own experience, I begin to doubt most potently of the authenticity of many of Homer's stories. I verily believe that when he had once launched one of his favorite heroes among a crowd of the enemy, he cut down many an honest fellow without any authority for so doing, excepting that he presented a fair mark, and that often a poor fellow was sent to grim Pluto's domains merely because he had a name that would give a sounding turn to a period. But I disclaim all such unprincipled liberties. Let me but have truth and the law on my side, and no man would fight harder than myself. But since the various records I consulted did not warrant it, I had too much conscience to kill a single soldier. By St. Nicholas, but it would have been a pretty piece of business. My enemies, the critics, who I foresee will be ready enough to lay any crime they can discover at my door, might have charged me with murder outright, and I should have esteemed myself lucky to escape with no harsher verdict than manslaughter. And now, gentle reader, that we are tranquilly sitting down here, smoking our pipes, permit me to indulge in a melancholy reflection, which at this moment passes across my mind. How vain, how fleeting, how uncertain, are all those gaudy bubbles after which we are panting and toiling in this world of fair delusions. The wealth which the miser has amassed with so many weary days, so many sleepless nights, a spendthrift heir may squander away in joyless prodigality. The noblest monuments which pride has ever reared to perpetuate a name, the hand of time will shortly tumble into ruins and even the brightest laurels gained by feats of arms may wither, and be for ever blighted by the chilling neglect of mankind. How many illustrious heroes, says the good Boetius, who were once the pride and glory of the age, hath the silence of historians buried in eternal oblivion. And this it was that induced the Spartans, when they went to battle, solemnly to sacrifice to the muses, supplicating that their achievements might be worthily recorded. Had not Homer turned his lofty lyre, observes the elegant Cicero, the valor of Achilles had remained unsung. And such, too, after all the toils and perils he had braved, after all the gallant actions he had achieved, such, too, had nearly been the fate of the chivalric Peter Stuyvesant, but that I fortunately stepped in, and engraved his name on the indelible tablet of history, just as the caitiff time was silently brushing it away for ever. The more I reflect, the more I am astonished at the important character of the historian. He is the sovereign censor, to decide upon the renown or infamy of his fellow men. 
he is the patron of kings and conquerors on whom it depends whether they shall live in after ages or be forgotten as were their ancestors before them the tyrant may oppress while the object of his tyranny exists but the historian possesses superior might for his power extends even beyond the grave the shades of departed and long-forgotten heroes anxiously bend down from above while he writes watching each movement of his pen whether it shall pass by their names with neglect or inscribe them on the deathless pages of renown even the drop of ink which hangs trembling on his pen which he may either dash upon the floor or waste in idle scrawlings that very drop which to him is not worth the twentieth part of a farthing may be of incalculable value to some departed worthy may elevate half a score in one moment to immortality who would have given worlds had they possessed them to ensure the glorious meed let not my readers imagine however that i am indulging in vainglorious boastings or am anxious to blazon forth the importance of my tribe on the contrary i shrink when i reflect on the awful responsibility we historians assume i shudder to think what direful commotions and calamities we occasion in the world i swear to thee honest reader as i am a man i weep at the very idea why let me ask are so many illustrious men daily tearing themselves away from the embraces of their families slighting the smiles of beauty despising the allurements of fortune and exposing themselves to the miseries of war why are kings desolating empires and depopulating whole countries in short what induces all great men of all ages and countries to commit so many victories and misdeeds and inflict so many miseries upon mankind and upon themselves but the mere hope that some historian will kindly take them into notice and admit them into a corner of his volume for in short the mighty object of all their toils their hardships and privations is nothing but immortal fame and what is immortal fame why half a page of dirty paper alas alas how humiliating the idea that the renown of so great a man as peter stuyvesant should depend upon the pen of so little a man as diedrich knickerbocker and now having refreshed ourselves after the fatigues and perils of the field it behooves us to return once more to the scene of the conflict and inquire what were the results of this renowned conquest the fortress of christina being the fair metropolis and in a manner the key to new sweden its capture was speedily followed by the entire subjugation of the province this was not a little promoted by the gallant and courteous deportment of the chivalric peter though a man terrible in battle yet in the hour of victory was he endued with a spirit generous merciful and humane he vaunted not over his enemies nor did he make defeat more galling by unmanly insults for like that mirror of knightly virtue the renowned paladin orlando he was more anxious to do great actions than to talk of them after they were done he put no man to death ordered no houses to be burnt down permitted no ravages to be perpetrated on the property of the vanquished and even gave one of his bravest officers a severe punishment with his walking staff for having been detected in the act of sacking a hen-roost 
he moreover issued a proclamation inviting the inhabitants to submit to the authority of their high mightinesses but declaring with unexampled clemency that whoever refused should be lodged at the public expense in a goodly castle provided for the purpose and have an armed retinue to wait on them in the bargain in consequence of these beneficent terms about thirty swedes stepped manfully forward and took the oath of allegiance in reward for which they were graciously permitted to remain on the banks of the delaware where their descendants reside at this very day i am told however by diverse observant travellers that they have never been able to get over the chap-fallen looks of their ancestors but that they still do strangely transmit from father to son manifest marks of the sound drubbing given them by the sturdy amsterdamers the whole country of new sweden having thus yielded to the arms of the triumphant peter was reduced to a colony called south river and placed under the superintendence of a lieutenant governor subject to the control of the supreme government of new amsterdam this great dignitary was called mynheer william beekman or rather beckman who derived his surname as did ovidius naso of yore from the lordly dimensions of his nose which projected from the centre of his countenance like the beak of a parrot he was the great progenitor of the tribe of the beekmans one of the most ancient and honourable families of the province the members of which do gratefully commemorate the origin of their dignity nor as your noble families in england would do by having a glowing proboscis emblazoned in their escutcheon but by one and all wearing a right goodly nose stuck in the very middle of their faces thus was this perilous enterprise gloriously terminated with the loss of only two men wolfet van horn a tall spare man who was knocked overboard by the boom of a sloop in a flaw of wind and fat brom van bommel who was suddenly carried off by an indigestion both however were immortalized as having bravely fallen in the service of their country true it is peter stuyvesant had one of his limbs terribly fractured in the act of storming the fortress but as it was fortunately his wooden leg the wound was promptly and effectually healed and now nothing remains to this branch of my history but to mention that this immaculate hero and his victorious army returned joyously to the manhattoes where they made a solemn and triumphant entry bearing with them the conquered rising and the remnant of his battered crew who had refused allegiance for it appears that the gigantic swede had only fallen into a swoon at the end of the battle from which he was speedily restored by a wholesome tweak of the nose these captive heroes were lodged according to the promise of the governor at the public expense in a fair and spacious castle being the prison of state of which stoffel brinkerhoff the immortal conqueror of oyster bay was appointed governor and which has ever since remained in the possession of his descendants note this castle though very much altered and modernized is still in being and stands at the corner of pearl street facing coenty's slip End note. it was a pleasant and goodly sight to witness the joy of the people of new amsterdam at beholding their warriors once more return from this war in the wilderness the old women thronged round Antony Van Corlear, 
who gave the whole history of the campaign with matchless accuracy, saving that he took the credit of fighting the whole battle himself, and especially of vanquishing the stout rising, which he considered himself as clearly entitled to, seeing that it was effected by his own stone pottle. The schoolmasters throughout the town gave holiday to their little urchins, who followed in droves after the drums, with paper caps on their heads and sticks in their breeches, thus taking the first lesson in the art of war. As to the sturdy rabble, they thronged at the heels of Peter Stuyvesant wherever he went, waving their greasy hats in the air, and shouting, Hard Coppic Pete forever! It was indeed a day of roaring rout and jubilee. A huge dinner was prepared at the Stott House in honor of the conquerors, where were assembled in one glorious constellation the great and little luminaries of New Amsterdam. There were the lordly Schout and his obsequious deputy, the burgomasters with their officious sheppens at their elbows, the subaltern officers at the elbows of the sheppens, and so on, down to the lowest hanger-on of police, every tag having his rag at his side to finish his pipe, drink off his heel-taps, and laugh at his flights of immortal dullness. In short, for a city feast is a city feast all over the world, and has been a city feast ever since the creation, the dinner went off much the same as do our great corporation junketings and Fourth of July banquets. Loads of fish, flesh, and fowl were devoured, oceans of liquor drunk, thousands of pipes smoked, and many a dull joke honored with much obstreperous fat-sided laughter. I must not omit to mention that to this far-famed victory Peter Stuyvesant was indebted for another of his many titles, for so hugely delighted were the honest burghers with his achievements that they unanimously honored him with the name of Peter de Groot, that is to say, Peter the Great, or, as it was translated into English by the people of New Amsterdam for the benefit of their New England visitors, Pete de Pig, an appellation which he maintained even unto the day of his death. End of section 26